Well, you guys can be seated. Uh, good morning. Welcome. Uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Mark. I serve as the pastor here at our Syracuse campus, and I'm excited to welcome you all here today. Um, we are, as I said, uh, we're in this spiritual warfare series, which I hope, I hope this has been a series that's kind of opened your eyes a little bit. Some people maybe, you know, maybe we don't think about this often enough. Uh, maybe, maybe we don't give it enough credit, uh, the spiritual warfare that's going on around us, uh, because it's there and it's real. We, we know that. We've, we've been told that. And so what we've been doing is we've been camped out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is what we've been taking uh, this series from, and it breaks down this, it's sort of this unholy trinity, I'd call it, okay, the unholy trinity of the enemy. Uh, it's describing these three different areas that we see spiritual battle in. Uh, and the big idea, though, that we've wanted you to take is that at the bottom there of the slide, you'll see the spiritual warfare involves both everyday life and otherworldly battle, otherworldly battles, okay? So everyday life, things that occur in our lives, those can be spiritual warfare. Some of it's the flesh. Some of it's the flesh that we deal with. We talked about that. And some of it's the world that we live in. Um, but it also involves otherworldly battles, okay? So we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil are that unholy trinity that I'm talking about here. And we see those portrayed in this verse. See, we see the course of this world, right? The prince of the power of the air, that's the devil. And the passions of our flesh, desires of the body and mind. That's the flesh, okay? Uh, I want to ask you, how many of you guys have seen the movie The Matrix in here? You seen The Matrix? Uh, I love that movie. It's this science fiction movie. Uh, it's about a future where humanity is unknowingly trapped inside this simulated reality. And I think that this concept is really relevant to spiritual warfare. In, in fact, uh, there's this book that I really like by John Eldridge called Waking the Dead. And he actually uses this concept in here too. And I'd like to kind of read, uh, he, he kind of takes us through a little bit of the scene from the movie and, and relates it to spiritual warfare. So it says, two men are seated across from each other in a dark room. Outside, a thunderstorm rages in the night, shaking the old house to its foundations. Flashes of lightning are dimmed by heavy curtains, which have been drawn because it is a secret meeting. This is the first time these men have ever met, though they have been searching for each other most of their lives. Not a moment too soon, their destinies have crossed. One of them, a tall black man dressed in all black, carries the aura of a spiritual master. The, young, the younger man, trying his best to conceal the fact that he is frightened and uncertain, might become his disciple. It all depends on a decision. Morpheus is speaking. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. Neo, the younger man, says, you could say that. Morpheus, I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he's expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neo? Neo says, no, Morpheus. Why not? Neo, because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. Morpheus, I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You've felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. 
You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Neo, the Matrix, Morpheus. Do you want to know what it is? Neo, yes, Morpheus. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us, even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to work, when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Neo, what truth? Morpheus, you, that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, into a prison that you cannot taste or smell or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the matrix is. You must see it for yourself. And each of his open palms held forth as an offering. The older man is offering two capsules, one red and the other blue. He is offering the younger man a chance at the truth. Morpheus says, this is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Neo takes the red pill. Lucy steps through the wardrobe. Aladdin rubs a lamp. Elisha prays that the eyes of his servant will be opened. Peter, James, and John follow Jesus up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And all of them discover that there is far more going on here than meets the eye. The film The Matrix is a parable, a metaphor, and though a dark story, it is far closer to reality and to your life than you probably have been led to believe. And the question Morpheus asks of Neo is a question the scriptures ask each of us. Do you want to see? Now that's the question that every believer is asked when first coming to faith. Do you, do you want to see the truth? Do you want to know the truth? To have your eyes opened? It's important to understand what learning the truth means. It means that you are no longer seemingly, I say, I say seemingly, on the sidelines of this battle. Okay? When you see the truth of who you are, who you are to God, what, what, what Jesus has done for you, uh, when you see the truth of that, you become free of this life of slavery that you've been living, free of this life of, of slavery to sin. Now, you're aware, though, of the spiritual warfare that's going on that non-believers are oblivious of. And this makes you a target for the enemy. See, before coming to faith, a person isn't a threat to the enemy. It's not a threat. They're, they're already on the enemy's side. They're caught up in the world, ruled by their flesh. The enemy doesn't care. The enemy's leaving them alone because you're actually fighting for the enemy without even knowing it. There, there really is no fence-sitting. Either, either you're living for God or like it says in these verses here, you're dead in your trespasses. So right here in verse, verse 1, right, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But when we accept Christ's forgiveness, we accept his payment for our sins, we gain that life that only he, he offers. We become alive, we become awake. Okay? The life of a believer points towards God. Okay? It glorifies him. So if you're a believer, you've, you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, and you're a threat to the enemy now. Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. 
The Holy Spirit is doing good work through you. So we've learned about these two dimensions that the enemy is using, okay? The, the world and the flesh to do battle against us. The world which we defined as an organized system in opposition and rebellion against God, and the flesh, which is a compulsive inner force, which is an opposition and rebellion against God. And like I said before, that, that big idea at the, beginning of the, at the beginning of the series that we talked about, that's at the bottom of the slide there, that's, that spiritual warfare it involves both everyday life and otherworldly battles. And so we've, we've really kind of focused a little bit. The world and the flesh has, has pointed us to that, the everyday battles. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the otherworldly battles, okay? So uh, today we're going to talk about Satan and demons. Now, I want to be clear, it's important to have a realistic view of Satan and demons. There's, there's kind of this spectrum when it comes to people's viewpoints about Satan and demons. One end of the spectrum is people who completely discount it, look at it more as like mythology, Satan and demons are, you know, yeah, they're talked about, but I don't really believe in them. There are people who think that. There are Christians who think that. But there are also Christians on the other end of the spectrum who are in just as much danger because they're giving the enemy too much credit. They think that everything is because of Satan. The devil made me do it. Um, or they just live in this fear about the demonic. They, they're, they're really um, unaware of the power that resides within us. Okay? So it's important to know uh, that we need to be have a right viewpoint, okay? Because we know that demons do exist, that Satan exists. Uh, Jesus dealt with demons numerous times throughout his ministry, casting out demons. Um, he was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan himself. So, so we can't discount the existence of demons and the devil, okay? But we also shouldn't live in this constant state of fear about the demonic either. Okay. I think this is, this is one of those destructive things that may have come about in our culture today when you think about maybe you guys like horror movies. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who do. But I think that's one of those, those dangers that have been brought about is it's portrayed this unrealistic idea that uh, demons and the devil have so much more power over believers than they do. They, they really, it just goes overboard. And so I think that's kind of a dangerous thing that our culture has brought about um, through those sorts of things. So since we hold the Bible as the ultimate authority, that's what I'd like to do today is we're going to use the Bible to tell us things about demons and about the devil, okay? So we're going to look at, first, we're going to look at five, five things that the Bible says about demons, Okay? And the first that it, thing that it says is that demons are fallen angels. Okay? In 2 Peter 2.4, For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until the day of judgment. See, God did not create demons to be demons. He, they were angels. He created angels. And these angels, uh, they turned against God. And they, they sinned, it says. And we don't know... We don't know exactly what it is that they did, how, how they sinned, uh, what went on, but we do know that they sinned and, the, and they stopped following God. They, they turned away from God. Most, most of us probably believe it's, it became some sort of 
sin of pride or something. They just elevated themselves. They wanted to be more than, than they should be, okay? That's what I think a lot of us probably think. Um, but like I said, God did not create them to be demons. But also, the second point is that not all demons are bound right now either, okay? So some are bound and some are not. So we read in here in Jude 1.6, and I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. So here we see again, here are some demons that are bound right now. But we also know that in Ephesians we read this, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So we can see here, it's, it's obvious that not all demons or all evil spirits are bound. Okay? They're still harassing people. They're harassing God's people. They're harassing you. you. You are at war. Okay, You were born into a, a war. And you were on the side of the enemy until you came to faith. And, it, and it's important to understand that there is, an, there is an army trying to destroy God's church. And we need to be aware of it. We don't want to discredit it. We don't want to give it too much credence, but we want to be aware of it. Because once you put your faith in Jesus, these, these evil spirits, they become your enemies as well. And they will do anything that they can to turn you away from God. There's, there's no sitting on the sidelines. There is no neutral area. Every Christian is called to battle each day, and we continue to fight until Christ's return. Uh, the encouraging part, though, is that we know who wins in the end. Okay? We fight from a, a position of victory. And that should give us confidence. Um, and we should also be encouraged by this next point that I want to share, is that demons have very limited power, okay? In 1 John 4.4, But you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. And the spirit who lives in the world is Satan and his demons, okay? And we can see... We can see their hold on their world right now, can't we? When you look around, you can see the hold that they have on this world. They're powerful forces, and on our own, without God, we don't, we don't really stand a chance. We really don't stand a chance. But read what that says again. The spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. God's people can't be defeated. The enemy can attack all they want, but we fight from a place of victory. The outcome's already known. And here's the next thing, the important thing to know, is that every Christian can fight them, every one of us. See, in Luke 10, 17, the 72 disciples, they returned back to Jesus, and they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. See, there isn't this, like, certain level of battle training or anything that you need to be able to fight demons. It's... it's we're given the power to overcome demons. It, it's not our power. It's, it's, it's his power. It isn't our own power or authority. It's God's. And that's important to know. We belong to him. 
And he has authority over the enemy. And so if we give ourselves to him, he has authority over us, and, and, and the enemy has no authority over us. His power resides in us, and everything that we need to, to battle spiritual warfare is, is all right there. And then one last point on demons is that demons can't possess Christians. You guys have probably seen some of these horror movies I'm talking about where people are possessed, right? Just totally in the control of a demon. Um, a believer can't be possessed. Okay? Since we have the Holy Spirit taking residence in our hearts, in 2 Corinthians here we read, he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. Okay, so there, the Holy Spirit's residing in us. There isn't room for, for an evil spirit to come in and, and make a home there. So while a Christian can't be possessed, what we say is they can certainly be oppressed. Okay? You can be oppressed by the enemy because a believer's given their, if they've, if they've given their life to Christ, he has authority over them. Christ does. And a demon can't own or possess that Christian. You've given yourself to Christ. So it's important to know that and remember that. But in this series, we've spent a lot of time talking about footholds and strongholds, right? And we can certainly, as believers, give up footholds to the enemy. Footholds that can sometimes lead to strongholds if we're not aware of it. We're not taking care of those footholds. If we're not uh, allowing God to, to take over those areas. This is really the only way the enemy can gain ground in a Christian's life, though, is through these footholds, just a foothold at a time. They can't just come in and take over because God lives in us. So we're told not to give the devil a foothold because that's the only way he can gain ground, like I said. Now let's talk about the devil. Let's talk about Satan, okay? Five things about Satan. Now, I want to be clear, there, there really isn't a whole lot in the Bible that we know about the origin of Satan. Um, it, it, there, there just isn't that much. And that's probably purposeful. God doesn't need us focusing on that too much. I mean, we need to be aware, but, but the Bible is full of God and what he's done, what he's done for his people, what he's, what he, what he's doing for us uh, constantly today. Okay? That's, we're, we're meant to focus on those things not on Satan. So, like I said, there isn't a whole lot, but there are some things that we do know from reading the Bible, and one of those things is that Satan is just a fallen angel. Okay, we read in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, for you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. Now, if you go through and read, read, read these passages here, you actually see that they're referencing a, a king of Babylon, actually. But most scholars believe that it's also uh, referencing Satan as well, okay? And here we get to see what brought down the fall of Satan. It was obviously pride. He wanted that glory that's only reserved for God. He wanted basically to be God himself. Okay, and we read on in Ezekiel 28, 13 to 70, it shares some more. It says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. 
You were blameless in all you did from the day you were created until the day evil was found in you. I expelled you, O mighty guardian. Your heart was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Oh, it says Satan was a mighty, angelic guardian. How can it be that he fell? That's, that's the danger of pride right there. That is the danger of pride. It's so destructive in our relationship towards God. See, pride, it elevates us and it lowers God in our own minds. And it prevents us from putting God at the center of our lives, from making him the Lord of our life. And if, if, if Satan can fall, if he can, if he can let that happen to him, I mean, it says he was a mighty, angelic guardian. I mean, he was there he, he, in the presence of God, and even he was taken down by pride. See, Satan forgot his place and who he was. <clears throat> like I said, it sounds like he was one, probably one of the highest positions of God's heavenly realm. But pride crept in, and it brought about discontentment. So Satan fell, and now he's an enemy of God. And see, Satan is now opposed to God's word, God's work. In John 10.10, 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Satan isn't actually his name. I don't know if you guys know that. Satan is actually, it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning adversary. And that's what he is. He's, he's the adversary. We call him the adversary or the enemy. Because his work now is to oppose everything that God is doing. I can imagine he knows his fate, the anger that he feels. And, and he probably wants to take as many down with him as he can out of spite, out of anger. And so his work is now to oppose everything godly. Any work of God will find opposition from Satan. Any work of God out in the world, any work of God in your life, you're going to find opposition. He doesn't want you to pursue God. He doesn't want that because he's no longer there. He no longer has that, that relationship with God. He's lost, and he doesn't want you to have that. So Jesus says here that his purpose is to give a rich and satisfying life. Satan's purpose, to destroy your life. And the way he does that is to prevent you from following Jesus. See, Satan hunts vulnerable Christians. Now think about that. He's actually hunting vulnerable Christians. He's not just out messing with the people who are non-believers. He doesn't care about them. They're not against him. He's okay with that. He's hunting vulnerable Christians. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. See, Peter warns believers to be constantly aware. Constantly aware and alert because of the danger that the enemy poses to believers. He talks about the devil prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. When, when lions hunt sure many of you have seen on National Geographic or something, when they hunt and they're, they're tracking down a, a, a herd, they pick out the weakest prey to take down. 
the babies, the, the old, the sickly. That's what they're looking for. And that's exactly how Satan hunts Christians. Exact same way. He's looking for the ones who are weak. He's looking for believers who are, a lot of times, who are going through something difficult. Maybe you're going through a difficult time, a lot of stress in your life. That's a perfect opportunity for him. That's when he's going to attack you. Or those who maybe you've neglected your prayer life, neglected staying in the Word, studying the Bible, um, that connection with God, you just really haven't been, been spending enough time in that. That's who he's going to target. And I can tell you for certain that he's looking for those Christians who are not staying connected with other believers. And know that. The ones who think that they don't need fellowship. My wife, Sharice, was actually, she was reading uh, this pamphlet that a friend of ours gave us uh, to me while we were driving. And it's about fellowship in the church. And there was this, this really great story that gives an awesome illustration in here. Um, I wanted to share it with you guys. There's a well-known story about a young man who was asked to pastor an old country church. Shortly after arriving to pastor the church, the young man was told about an old man who lived far out in the woods who had quit attending church. He had been a faithful friend of the former pastor who had retired and disdained a younger man taking his place. The young pastor took it upon himself to pay the man a visit. On a Saturday afternoon, he drove up the rough dirt road until it turned into a lane. He got out of his car and hiked back up into the hills to an old log cabin nestled in a clearing surrounded by brush. As he approached the cabin, he noticed that the door was propped open. So he gently knocked and proceeded to enter the one dark room. As his eyes grew accustomed to the dim light, he saw the old man sitting in a rocking chair, staring at the dying flames in his fireplace. Quietly, the young man pulled up a chair and sat down beside him. Not saying a word, they both just sat there, staring into the fire. After a while, the young man took a stick that was sitting by the fireplace and carefully separated one of the glowing embers out of the fire onto the hearth. After a short time, the ember, which had been burning brightly in the midst of the fire, grew dark and cold. He then gently put it back among the other embers, where it quickly regained its former brightness and flame. The pastor then quietly rose and left the room. From that day forward, the old man never missed a Sunday. See, coals heaped together in the midst of the flames will continue to burn brightly, even as a church made up of many members will continue in the faith, encouraging and strengthening one another as they journey together. Don't become that Christian that thinks that they don't need anybody else, that thinks that your church is up on the lake fishing each Sunday or up on riding trails, um, that you don't need anybody else. We need each other to, be, to build each other up. Don't separate yourself and become the weak prey for Satan. And another thing important to know is that Satan's greatest tool is deceit. In John 8, Satan has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is the greatest liar of all time. Uh, he began in the Garden of Eden, from clear back at the beginning, by telling Eve that God only didn't want them to eat of the fruit that they were instructed not to because 
If they did, they were going to become like God. Does it sound familiar? Sounds like the fall of Satan, right? That he, he got them tricked in the same thinking that they could become their own gods or become like God. Lying is the only language that Satan knows because there is no truth in him, as it says. And he's got a lot of experience at it. Thousands of years now he's been lying, and he's, he's an expert. And I can tell you from personal experience the lies that he had me trapped in for a long, long time. See, I, I was not a believer for most of my life. Um, I, I've told a little bit of my story uh, from time to time here when, I'm, when I get up here. Um, and, and I was really, I was stuck from a, a life of selfishness, of addiction. I was stuck in, in sexual addiction, pornography. Um, it, it, was, it was destructive, completely destructive. I believe the lies that the enemy t- says about, you know, pornography, that, you know, you're not hurting anybody else by watching this. You're only, it's, it's just you. That's a lie. That's one of his great lies. More of his great lies um, that you don't need any help, that you can beat this on your own. And I tried that and failed over and over and over again. And then I was believing the lies that I really wasn't uh, going to be able to beat this, that I was never going to defeat it. I would always be stuck in this place. Maybe that's a lie that you've, you've heard yourself. That was a lie that, he, that I believed for a long time. And then when I started trying to seek help, when I started trying to find um, God, because I, was, I had nothing else, nothing else, and I sought out God for help. And then I believed another amazing lie of Satan that I'm not really worthy of God's forgiveness. I'm not worthy of the grace that he offers. But over time, as I kept coming um, to church to, to be to, to small groups and being around fellow believers and, and learning, studying the word and, and prayer and through some very, very powerful prayer from my wife, I was delivered from a lot of that. I, I, I can tell you I had a lot of demonic, I don't know, possession or oppression, uh, but, but it, was, it was powerful and I was delivered from that. But those lies kept me trapped for such a long time. And I know there are many of you here today who have, who have heard those same lies and who may have believed them. And I hope you're, I hope you're aware of the fact that that's, that's Satan's lies. Those are Satan's lies. Those are not the truth. The truth is found in God's word. And we know that whoever puts their faith in Jesus is forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. His grace is granted to us. No matter who we are, no matter what you've done, that's what it says in God's word. And here's the last point about Satan. This is, is the awesome part, is that one day Satan is going to face God's judgment. Okay, in Revelation 20.10, Then the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, joining the beast and the false prophet. There they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. See, one day... We, we know the end result, that Satan and the demons are going to be cast away for all time. The evil is going to be conquered and extinguished, done. And we know that. He's given us, he's, he's, he's given us a spoiler. 
The, the end of the story, we know. And so we, we know that we have that confidence that God is going to do that. So don't be deceived by the devil in the meantime. Don't let him get any footholds in your life because he's, he's not going to stop trying. But stay in the word. Stay, stay in prayer. Stay coming, coming to church and small groups, staying around fellow believers because that's how we're going to be able to identify his lies. When you're on your own, those lies seem so real. So I, I just pray that you guys would, would really, if you take anything away from this, it's that we already live in victory. We have that victory. It's secure. And there's nothing that Satan can, can do to, to change that end result. But he's not going to stop trying, so we just need to be aware. And that's what we come here for. We gather together uh, so that we can, we can stay in that space of identifying his lies.